Everybody, happy Monday. It's Fan Drive Time, Sportsnet 590, The Fan. I am Ben Ennis. Man, what a way to start my week. I just found out the blind side. It's a lie. It's all a lie. Maybe we'll get to that later on in the show, but apparently Michael Orr, not truly adopted by that family in Memphis, and you know they took all his money. It's a devastating way for me to start the week. I, I read that Michael Lewis book. I watched the movie. Now I don't know what to believe. Um, Blue Jays, though, with a day off today. They're first in 18 games. They uh, went through the 17 and 17 stretch. Uh, okay, I guess. Nine and eight. Uh, last off day was July 27th. So in, in a way, a lot has changed since the Blue Jays last had an off day. Remember, it was the trade deadline afterwards. The last off day they had was before the trade deadline. So you got David Schneider, Paul DeYoung, Jordan Hicks. They're all now Blue Jays. They weren't last time they had an off day. But in, a, in another way, this Blue Jays team is very similar to the one we saw more than two weeks ago. They can still pitch the hell out of the baseball, but the offense can be very infuriating. Uh, Blue Jays hitting 251 with runners in scoring position during the 17-game stretch. It bumped their overall average with runners in scoring position up to 247. So still not very good. Uh, Homestand wraps up with two more games against the Phillies tomorrow. Like, we got nothing but off days this week. Another off day coming your way on Thursday, which means maybe a a lighter workload for our next guest who is kind enough to join us on his off day. Although he has an article just posted on Sportsnet.ca. It's it's Shai Davidi. Happy Monday, buddy. What's up, Ben? Um, Did you read The Blind Side? Uh, I did not read The Blind Side, but I saw the movie. Yeah. How do you feel that that's all a lie? Uh, you, allegedly, by by Michael Orr. Does that, that, that you know? Should we give? Should Sandra Bullock have to give the Oscar back? Uh, I mean, I haven't read the piece yet, but you don't uh, have to answer that should, honestly and and, and sincerely. And well, you know, uh, I always try to give a good answer, even to your worst questions, Ben. So, <laughs> uh, you know, I I mean. Sure. I mean, whether or not it's true, it was a good movie. So mm-hmm. we can stick with that for the time being, right? That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's right. Based on a true story does not mean true story. Uh, it's a good, exactly. good call. Um, let, before we get to the, the, the games over the weekend, let's, let's go back to the weekend. And, boy, I, I did a lot of Jose Bautista content on Fridays. We took his press conference live uh, before the show and then had a bunch of guests. I kind of reliving those 15 and 16 seasons um, what did, what did you think of the pomp and circumstance on, on Saturday? I, I know some people that, that got to the ballpark at nine 30 in the morning to get a bobblehead. It was jam packed building. It, it really, it, it seemed like a spectacular event. Yeah. I mean, tremendously well done ceremony and really touching on a lot of emotions for different people, hitting the right notes between nostalgia, celebrating the man, celebrating the teams, uh, celebrating the era it just it really touched uh, touched a lot of points in uh, in a meaningful way. So uh, a great ceremony, and to me, uh, one of the lasting images of that will be just seeing Jose Batista in tears. Uh, you know, really just taken by the moment. You, know, you just think about, for me, the image in my mind of Jose Batista is that fierce, intense, you know, almost scowl. Just uh, he was a he was a presence, and then to see the armor fully down and uh, a man just really taken in by the achievement and and the moment. Uh, to me, that that was that was really something. No, it was great. It was a great moment for the fans, and and you know, got me thinking about the level of excellence. I had some conversations last week about who 
should be next on the level of excellence and whether it should be more of an inclusive level of excellence or an exclusive level of excellence. But I, I, I think, and, and, and we look at the attention the Blue Jays got for, for the lead-up to that and then the actual event, and like I said, the attention for that game and, and a packed house. The Blue Jays have been doing a good job of packing the house recently. I, I think they should do more of that stuff. Like, I, I don't know. Is it out of the realm of possibility they put somebody else in there next year? Well, I mean, I, I'm not sure about next year. I think the, the other person that kind of has, of, of that era, that has a, pre, a, a reasonable case is Edwin Encarnacion, yeah. right? And, and for me, he'd be a yes, mm-hmm. but I can see the argument against it because it's really, you know, four years of, in, you know, elite production and major impact uh, that you're really talking about. And if you're thinking about the level of excellence, you want sort of a notch above it, right? Because there are a lot of guys who are sort of in that four or five year, had good four or five years of runs mm-hmm. that, that haven't been celebrated, right? Go back, Tom Hankey, Jimmy yep. Key, Pat Henkin, uh, Vernon Wells. Like, there are a lot of guys who you could say, okay, if we're, if we're going to open it up a little bit more, we can make this really, we, we could have a lot of guys up there. Uh, but I think it all just comes down to what do you want it to be? Do you want it to be a celebration of the guys who are truly elite, the guys who truly change the trajectory of the franchise? I think the guys up there right now all have had that degree of impact. Or, you know, are you opening it up to, you know, to say the same debate over the Hall of Fame, the Hall of Good or Hall of Great? Mm-hmm. And, and I think right now the level of excellence, it's like it's the truly elite of the franchise. And so, I, you know, I think there's, I don't want to rush him into retirement by any stretch, but I think the, the case could be made for Buck Martinez as well. Yeah. Uh, just think about kind of what he's meant to the franchise in, in a number of different roles over over the period of time that he has. I mean, he's really one of the people who's synonymous with the franchise. But, you know, I think if you're talking about like the Jose Bautista level of contributors, I mean, it's I think everybody on that level mm. is up there right now. No, that's a good point. I just, I mean, that was just so fun. <laughs> and again, sure. I, I'm sure Mark Shapiro really enjoyed all the attention that his team got and, and the positive re- uh, reviews uh, that the whole thing got. That, yeah, I, I guess, yeah, you don't want to get, you don't want to water it down. You don't want to do it too often. I, I just enjoyed it immensely. So you mentioned Edwin, who's, yeah, he, it, it's Jose and it's Edwin, and it's Josh Donaldson for uh, 2015 as the three headed monster that made that team go. He was in uniform. Like, what? What is his role now with the with the Blue Jays? Is this going to be an extended um, tenure with the current Blue Jays? No, he's been uh, doing some sort of guest coaching appearances. There's no, no specific title. I guess you could uh, it'd be something along the lines of Victor Martinez special assistant, but they haven't really firmed anything up definitive. Uh, at least uh, when I last checked, uh, and it was more sort of a uh, the way Edwin put it to me is like. They call me and I come. <laughs> so okay. uh, it, it's pretty much that. And it's just for him to be around and to be a, re- a resource for guys and to talk to guys. And, and if they don't want to talk to him, then they don't have to kind of thing. So uh, it, it, it's not especially formal right now. I know that uh, he's been down through the system a little bit. He, you know, he met at different points of season with Aravis Martinez as well and, and other prospects. So, you know, you have a guy who was an elite, elite power hitter in the majors it makes sense to have them both go around and sort of get some feedback on on what guys look like and then also be there as a resource for them to to just toss uh toss things around with as well yeah um 
whatever he can do to help the offense right now would, would be um, greatly appreciated because, yeah, the, the, the pitching's been great, and the offense was, was good enough, even great, yesterday, but it's, it's been sparse uh, recently. But the, the Blue Jays taking advantage of the fact the Mariners had to play the Orioles the last three games, uh, thus ending their eight-game winning streak, so they've lost two in a row. So Blue Jays now with a little bit of breathing room in that third wild-card spot, a game and a half up on the Mariners, but they're 66-54 and 54 with the, the second-best ERA in the majors, I guess, now. The, the Mariners passed them. How do you evaluate where the, where the Blue Jays are here with just over a month to go in the regular season? You know, this season starting to remind me a little bit of 2016, mm-hmm. where that season you expected the offense to just crush, and it didn't quite do that. And then the pitching was just unbelievable. Remember, they, I think they went through the whole season just six or seven starters. Uh, some of that was by choice. And they ran a, briefly a six-man rotation after they got Lariano. And, you know, Jay Happ emerged and wins 20 games and, and is terrific. Uh, but then the offense, it was just a grind, right? And it's not that they didn't have good offensive players. It just, for whatever reason, it didn't fully come together. And sort of that's remind me a little bit of that feel. I've been thinking about that a bit the past couple of weeks, how it has a similar, it's, it's on a similar track. So, you know, we keep waiting for this Eureka moment that the offense unlocks and all of a sudden it, you know, the, the runs are start flowing and that could certainly happen because there are a number of guys who still have to get to their career norms. And, you know, the, we saw what Bo Bichette did over the final six months, uh, excuse me, six weeks of last season where he just turned it on and, and, and got back to, got back to his level. And, you know, Vladdy's capable of doing that. Springer's capable of doing that. Dalton Varsho certainly get hot. Uh, a number of other guys as well, uh, Alejandro Kirk, but, you know, maybe this is just a year where it's a grind and everything comes hard and, that pitching is going to have to do the heavy lifting. Yeah, that's a, a really interesting comparison because, yeah, it, it took, like, until the end of the regular season, what did they, they had to win a game against a Red Sox team that was home and cooled out, and, and they just barely won it. And then, of course, yeah, the incredible wild card game against the Orioles. And then they end up making an American League Championship Series, losing in five games. But, yeah, got shut down by soft-tossing Ryan Merritt, who I, I at last check I don't believe is in the Major Leagues of Baseball. Uh, in fact, his career, I think that, well, that was clearly the highlight of his career, uh, was not, in fact, shaking in his boots. But that was, yeah, I mean, if this Blue Jays team made it to an American League Championship Series, it would certainly be um, a success in in in, uh, in some way. I will say that, yeah, the, the offense, you know, grinding it out. I, I agree with you that we're already at that point that this team doesn't feel like it's going to hit four home runs a game. Um, but if you're going to grind it out, you got to be better than this team has been at cashing runners from third with fewer than two outside. Like, honestly, you, you can point to the runners in scoring position stuff all you want, and I, it is correlated, I suppose, because if you get a hit with a guy in third base with fewer than two outs, that also boosts your runners in scoring position batting average. To me, that's the number one issue I have with this offense because, yeah, guys have down years. That, that happens. Nothing's stopping you from being a professional hitter taking what's given to you and cashing those base runners from third base. It's, it's essentially the difference between what they've done offensively and what the Orioles have done. It's like 20 to 30 runs this season. The Orioles, like top to bottom, their offensive numbers, not dissimilar. They've just cashed in those cir- circumstances. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I don't know the, I, I haven't checked the numbers recently, but I know at one point they were towards the bottom of the league. Second last. In, right. In getting runs in. Uh, from in that spot, look, I think it all kind of correlates, right? If you're executing well with running the scoring position, I mean, that's one of the things that you're doing. 
And, you know, I thought it was interesting. Uh, I talked with Brandon Dalt yesterday after the game. And one thing he said that he really liked about what they did yesterday is that they uh, forced, uh, forced Jameson Tyon into, into more of the middle of the zone. And that when, when, you're, you know, when you're executing well as an offense, that's what you're doing, and then you can do damage. And that at times where the Blue Jays get themselves into troubles, like they start getting big, they start chasing pitchers' pitches, um, swinging at pitches they shouldn't be, and then all of a sudden you get into the situation that they've been in far too often. And so is this just, uh, you know, I, I, all these points have been made. I think they all understand it. I think just executing it, it's tough right now. And for whatever reason, for this team, and is there maybe a bit of a snowball effect from the snow from the slow start that's carrying over, and guys are just carrying this baggage around in, in those situations, and they're not able to clear their minds quite right? Yeah, you know, I know that these guys they they really really care, and maybe they're caring too much, you know, and that's getting in the way a little bit. I I don't know if anybody if somebody had an answer, it would have been yeah, it would have been fixed a while ago. So. It's just a very strange circumstances that these very talented hitters are not executing in those spots and how you overcome that. I mean, you know, I think if someone has a real answer that could deliver results, they'd be making some good money right now. Sure would. Uh, and I gave the Blue Jays short shrift. Sorry, they're third worst in baseball at cashing runners from third base with, with fewer uh, than two outs. Don't, don't want to mess that one up. All right, so so Vlad, you're right. And, and you're you're absolutely correct to bring up the Bo Bichette uh, surge from last season where he was hitting seventh this month. He was banged down to seventh in the in the Blue Jays lineup this month and then went on the tear of all tears and ended up once again leading the American League in hits by the end of the season and all his, his season numbers looked real, real good. So that could happen with, with Vlad. But if it doesn't, Shy, and, and boy, there is some evidence to believe that it will not because his on-base percentage is identical to the ones he's had... Th- Twice, uh, uh, other t- two other times in his career, like 339. He, he likes to have a 339 on base percentage. It was exactly that last season. Of course, the power numbers are down. But, like, say he finishes with, you know, 25 home runs and, and an OPS sub 800. What does it do as far as the evaluation of, of how you build this, this Blue Jays team going forward and, 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 and the expectation that he will have on him going into next season? It's an interesting question. I mean, for me, I know the numbers are the numbers and the performance obviously matters. I just think you look at the talent and the package and the skill set, and it's like that's not a 800 OPS guy, right? And this is a, this is a 950 OPS talent. And I think if you're going into the next season, you're thinking to yourself, okay, what do we have to do to help him unlock that? That, to me, would be the overriding question for the Blue Jays. And I don't think it's a single thing. I think it's definitely multifactorial. You know, I think that last year that there wasn't a steady cleanup hitter behind him uh, quite in the way that there was in 21. Uh, you know, Teoscar Hernandez had moments and surges last year, but he wasn't consistent there. Alejandro Kirk was good in spots, but it wasn't a, a significant power threat, and they did the bulk of the work in the fourth spot last year, if memory serves, uh, you know, does, does he need a bit more protection behind him? Cause you know, I think that it's not a coincidence that his best year was 21 and to Oscar Hernandez was an absolute monster that year. 
mm. right uh, behind him and that okay you want you you want to put an extra you want to put Vlad on with uh, after guys or Vari reach in front of him well here's Teoscar Hernandez here to break your heart about it and that 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 hasn't been there in the same way and so you know that's not an excuse but I you know you I I know there are people who think that Vlad sometimes expands he's trying to force things because he he knows what's expected of him and he's trying to trying to make things happen could something like that help sure i think one way or the other the blue jays are, are going to be looking for some more offensive impact i mean they're going to have to because they've got four four regulars who are going to be uh entering the free agent market or at least have the potential to enter the free agent market after the season so there's going to be definitely be some changes to to this lineup and you're going to need some impact there. Uh, so, you know, I'd, there are a number of different ways that you can look at it. But ultimately, you could say, okay, this is what he is. But he's 24, huh. and he's already and he's already had an All Star season and three seasons of 800 OPS in the majors. And you know that that's that's a ceiling rather than the floor for him. So, that would be the way I would look at it. And I'd be thinking about what do I have to do to get the best out of him. Yeah, Ronald Acuna Jr. is 25. Like, yeah, I get it. No, and it's, it's, I'm not saying that he can't get better, but lots of guys do emerge, like, right out of the womb as, as not the finished product, maybe, but, but pretty damn close. And I know Vlad did have the 2021. Um, and he's having a good year. Nobody, nobody's saying that he's having a bad, bad year, but certainly not the one people would have expected out of him. Uh, the Cubs getting more than they expected, or, or I, I guess, like, the, the, like 80th percentile uh, outcome with Cody Bellinger. And the Blue Jays were, were, were seemingly very active in, in trying to land him in free agency this offseason. you got a story out right now on sportsnet.ca. It touches on a bunch of stuff, including the Bellinger thing, who looked real good uh, over the weekend. And as uh, I'm sure he hoped, is, is going to now opt out of this mutual uh, contract option, which I don't think has ever been mutually picked up in the history of mutual options. But anyways... He's going to become a free agent again. Um, how close do you think the Blue Jays were to, to landing him? Was it a matter of money, or did, did he just choose the Cubs over the Blue Jays? Yeah, I mean, uh, when I spoke to him, he obviously didn't say, oh, this, this was the exact difference. He just said that it was a definite consideration for him and that he'd, you know, he'd heard a lot of good things, and uh, he, he gave it a some serious thought. But, uh, you know, he ultimately chose the Cubs. And look, in talking to some other people, they kind of said, hey, if you want to go – value rebuild as an offensive player uh you know it's a pretty good spot in the nl central where yeah you know you're in a you're a good hitters park against some weaker clubs you can put up some good numbers so uh, i think that was part of it i think the experience of playing at wrigley you know you lose one sort of legacy franchise in the dodgers he goes to another in the cubs and nice connection there for him and uh but you know i think if you're looking sort of at blue jays needs and casting forward all right well you know if you imagine imagine that worked out, how this lineup would look with Cody Ballinger in it, and he, in a lot of ways, he's exactly what they need. And it's not going to be a great free agent class. There isn't a lot of offensive impact, you know. Like, you know, let's let's push Shohei Otani aside and because mm. you know, and put him in the unicorn category. But beyond him, uh, I mean, you're looking at Matt Chapman, you're looking at Teoscar Hernandez. Uh, you know, the, a lot of movies that the Blue Jays have played already. Um, and if you want sort of a left-handed hitting uh, power hitter uh, who can you know play outfield where you're going to have some openings, I mean, Cody Bellinger is kind of it. So uh, the Blue Jays do have 
roughly $70 million coming off the books. I'd expect their payroll to be in and around a similar level. Uh, you know, uh, if you're kind of just playing armchair GM, and, you know, this is just me kicking some ideas around and nothing more than that, but I, 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 if I was in that chair, I would be revisiting that and seeing if uh, maybe him getting a, a glimpse of Toronto on a full weekend and seeing the way Jose Batista gets celebrated and remembered mm. by the fans, Maybe that just happens to linger in his mind a little bit. Oh, interesting. Yeah, he, he is. Uh, he's in the 93rd percentile and outs above average as well. So, like, imagine Dalton Varsho, but if he could hit. Um, yeah, that would be, that'd be pretty good uh, playing center field. All right. Um, I want to get to, to Bo Bichette, who you also wrote about. And, and boy, I remember when he suffered the knee injury, it looked so devastating that I, I, I posed the question whether you would take, hey, Bo Bichette misses a month, or, like, would you roll the dice on what's in the box? And I would have taken the month. Looks like it's going to be a lot sooner than that, though, Shy. I mean, it's, uh, it's it's progressing faster than even he expected. And he said that he's uh, he's moving along well, and uh, he's going to work out again today at the Rogers Center. Uh, he's taking ground balls and uh, done some running over the past couple of days. And all things being equal, I mean, it could be uh, a rehab assignment at AAA Buffalo in the next couple of days. And I'd imagine that that wouldn't be particularly long there unless he wasn't feeling exceptionally confident on the knee where, you know, he needed a little bit of time there. So I think right now it's really about him learning tolerances and understanding what he can and can't do on the knee uh, and just making sure that he feels good that he can do the things that he needs to. Uh, and he said he still has to work on range plays to his right and left and charging in a slow roller. Um, he still, you know, experiences a little bit of, uh, he's still kind of working to build some confidence when he's breaking after or decelerating after he goes into a full sprint. So um, th- those are a couple of things that he's still got on the go, but he's, he's definitely made a lot, lot of progress faster than, than people had thought, which is in a lot of ways the ideal scenario. All right, last one, and it, it hurts uh, me to even bring up the possibility that Davis Schneider might not be headed into the Hall of Fame. And who knows? Like, yeah, he, he obviously wasn't going to hit 700 the whole season, but he's he's won for his last 12 with the seven strikeouts. He does have four walks in there and has the, the double, the, the flare to, to right field as well. Um, is this just a, the natural progression of a guy, you know, getting this guy's getting a book on him and, and maybe attacking him in ways that he's going to have to adjust to? Like, what have you seen out of Davis Schneider recently? Well, I mean, it hasn't been a, a ton of at-bats for him either yeah. uh, in in the last little while. But I think you're seeing both the the elements that made that that got him here, right? The way that he's still working counts, and the way that he's competitive uh, in the batter's box, and then that he's still learning, and that the stuff here in the big leagues is better than the stuff that you're seeing in AAA, and that there's going to be some growth. And yeah, like what a what a dream scenario would have been for the Blue Jays that he hits the ground running and. Uh, just doesn't have any sort of blip whatsoever. But, you know, like, like you said, he wasn't going to hit uh, 700 hmm. in the big leagues. That was obviously a dream debut weekend where every single possible thing that could have gone right for him did. Uh, and it was a, a shot in the arm that the Blue Jays needed. Uh, but, you know, if, if the Blue Jays are relying on, on a David Schneider, you know, then some other things have gone wrong for them. Right. And, uh, and that's not a disrespect to him. It's just that that's not the situation that they had planned to be in. So, uh, you know, Kevin Biggio has played well of late. Santiago Espinal has played well of late. I think that's part of it too. 
uh, David Schneider is going to have to wait for some opportunities and not get consistent at bats and figure out how to stay productive through that circumstance, which can be difficult. So I think all that is played into the mix. Yep. Uh, and uh, maybe we'll see him tomorrow in game one of this two game set against the Phillies. Shy, enjoy the rest of your day off. Thank you, sir. You got it, buddy. Talk to you soon. Talk soon. There's uh, Shy Davidi, Sportsnet and Sportsnet.ca. Honestly, I mean, yeah, Brandon Bell talked about it. Hey, you're trying to force pitchers into the middle of the zone, working counts. You know, it's, it's not always about getting base hits, hitting home runs. That's the ideal scenario. But, like, there are other things you can do as an offensive player to help your team. And one of those things is work a deep count and have the threat of a walk, which David Schneider's still done over the stretch of striking out a bunch and only having one hit. Like, I still got time for David Schneider offensively, even though, yeah, he's not hitting a home run a game, which he did in his first two games in the major leagues of baseball. Here's the, the dirty little secret about the 2023 Toronto Blue Jays. They have, as you well know, a, a great pitching staff, both the rotation and the bullpen. And, man, how many teams can lose a, a guy who's a top five American League Cy Young Award candidate basically for the entire entire season? Alec Manoa has been, if if he's in the major leagues, he's been ineffective. And then for a prolonged period of time, not in the major leagues. They've lost him, haven't missed a beat, even before Hunjin Ryu came back and looked pretty close to his best self. Pitching staff is great. Bullpen has swing and miss. Outfield defense, spectacular. Left side of the infield defense, pretty good. Right side, maybe not. And two capable catchers. If this team could figure it out offensively for a month and a half, could figure it out for just a month, but that month being October, there is a path to, and this goes without saying, this is one of the World Series favorites going into the season, but we watched it play out, to this team winning a World Series. And I, met, I mentioned the difference offensively between the Blue Jays and Orioles. While it feels like the gulf is massive because, you know, the Orioles have played a lot better when they face the Blue Jays this season. There's an element to what's happening with the Orioles that is, hey, everything's coming together. They just won back-to-back extra inning games against the hottest team in baseball, the Seattle Mariners. They've cashed those runners at third base with fewer than two outs. Blue Jays start doing that. You can see a path, but it's been so long. It's been like five months of this, this season. I shouldn't say that. April, they looked damn good offensively when Matt Chapman was winning Player of the Month awards. So we'll see. Uh, they got a, another team that you know, has World Series aspirations, was in one last year, coming up for two games in the Philadelphia Phillies. Speaking of Philadelphia, it's uh, a day where they're probably not talking a lot about the Phillies on Philadelphia Sports Talk Radio today because James Harden is in China. And there was a video that came out this morning. People were sharing around Twitter or X um, in which he said he will never again play for an organization helmed by Daryl Morey. We'll talk to Keith Pompey, Sixers reporter for the Philadelphia Inquirer next as the fan drive time continues. I'm Ben Ennis, Sportsnet 590 The Fan. Drive Time Sports Time 590 The Fan. I'm Ben Ennis. So 50 days today, actually, until NBA training camps open up. 
Will James Harden be at Sixers camp? Good question. Will he be traded by then? Mm, who knows? Um, but if he's not, yeah, the idea of him not attending Sixers training camp, uh, it's gaining some traction because today, video surfacing of him calling Sixers president Daryl Morey a liar and that he would, quote, never be a part of an organization that he's a part of, end quote. Sorry, not end quote, because then he just, like, repeated it again. Like, as if, you know, there was any mistaking what he said the first time. Uh, it's making waves all over the place, uh, I'm sure, very much so in Philadelphia, where we find Keith Pompey, Sixers reporter for the Philadelphia Inquirer. How's it going, Keith? Busy day today, I bet. Yeah, man, I was supposed to be on vacation. Oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do apologize for that, man. But um, uh, not you. Not you. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. It's things happening on the other side of the globe. Um, so let's let's go back to, you know, the the, the recent storyline of, of, of the, the life and times of James Harden and the Philadelphia 76ers. It did seem like the Sixers were pulling him from the trade market. Well, like before this came out, before this was publicly stated, um, was there an idea that maybe the fences could be mended between James Harden and the Sixers? Um, you know what? A, a slight one. I mean, one where, you know, I, I think the expectation was that, you know, it will probably take some time for things to work out. You know what I mean? Like they were, the Sixers weren't exactly, uh, like they wanted him back, but they, they didn't know what James was thinking. And they knew that it would probably take some massaging and, and, and a long conversation, a long talk to have it. But, you know, I, I think things got, took a major step back, major steps back, you know, after this weekend. So you, you wrote about it today. Yeah, breaking mm -hmm. your vacation, which is a bummer. Sorry, right, hopefully you can go back <laughs> on vacation after this. But um, he did, like, in actual fact, take a $15 million pay cut, which, uh, listen, nobody, mm -hmm. nobody's crying poor for, for James Harden. But that was something that happened. Like, if we were going to, you know, view it through James Harden's eyes, what, why do you think he's calling Daryl Morey a liar? Um, you know, it, it's weird. It, it could be two things. Like the one thing is, is you know, is the one thing that I think is like, that you, you brought it up, right? You said it, like $15 million pay cut, right? Mm. So the assumption is, and, and the thing is, is like if typically if you're a guy and you take a $15 million pay cut, you assume that you're going to be taken care of at the end, right? And Opting in isn't basically the way that I guess he believes he was going to be taken care of. So that's a, so to me, that's the major thing. And then secondly, you know, saying, okay, well, we'll trade you. And then when you look at it, you know, you can look at it two ways where, you know, James Harden isn't the player that he used to be and people don't want him. Or was Daryl Morey basically uh, – you know, wanting the King's ransom for him where he knew that no one was going to take it. So, but to me, I think the 15 is one of the things where you look at it and if you're a player, you think, okay, I'm going to take this one for the team and I'm going to be taken care of next summer. And it never happened. Does this feel planned? Like, like I said, he repeated the comments twice, although it was like cell phone footage and it was in China. Like, do you think it, it's possible that this was released at this time to, to ramp up the pressure on the Sixers to move him before training camp? I think so. I mean, I, I think what it was is it was kind of like a drop-the-mic moment 
to me. Like, it was one of those things where, you know, the Sixers come out this weekend and they made it known that they're not no longer trading James. And then next thing you know, there's a report out that James said, I'm not coming to training camp. And then people are like, okay, well, James didn't say anything. The Sixers didn't really say anything publicly. And I felt like, like you said, it came from a phone. And whereas they knew, like, okay, James, right now, you know, right now, what what has to happen is um, you got to come out and say something to make it seem like we're for real and this is serious. You know what I mean? So I think that if, if nothing happened this weekend, I don't think we would have had this taken on a you know on a on a cell phone and and James would have had that statement because you think about it, mm-hmm. he stressed it twice. He says, and yes. I'll say again. <laughs> Da, da, da. Like, he wanted everyone to know what he was saying. You know, there's an interesting Raptors connection here. I mean, part of it is Nick Nurse is now the head coach of the Philadelphia 76ers. The other part, though, is that he opted into this, the, the second year of this two-year deal that he signed with the Sixers, again, to save him $15 million bucks against the cap last year. There was, like, a thought, and, and certainly here in Toronto when we thought about the potential landing spots for Fred Van Vliet, that he was going to opt out, become a free agent, and the Rockets were going to use all their cap space on him it just sign him in free agency. Instead, they they shift their focus to Fred Van Vliet. Like, what, were you surprised that he opted into the second half? Like, all of this w- would be, you know, we wouldn't be thinking about it if 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 James had just controlled his own destiny and decided to to hit free agency. Like, what what role do the the Rockets play in all this? Yeah, I, I was a little surprised that he did. I, I think you know what more so than the Rockets. I think it was Ime Udoka who who basically. Um, play the thing because you know there was a point where everybody thought and sources were saying it that that James or the belief was that James was going to go to Houston and then once Fred opted out made it be known that he was going to opt out then all of a sudden Eme was looking at Fred and saying he's a better fit so Fred got the money but in regards to James taking that money I, I feel like if you look at it right now you know you got to be really, really, really good or going to be really impactful for a team to throw that type of money that Fred got at, got in other, in, in other places. But all the teams that really had a lot of cap space to go out and get an A-list type of player were struggling teams, teams that guys didn't really want to be a part of, right? I mean, you even look at Houston. Houston is a struggling team, but they have a new coach and they have Fred now. So James could have, like, opted out and gone to one of those teams and got paid. But the best way for him to go to a contender, a contending team, was opting in and hoping that he got traded to that way. You know what I mean? Because, yeah, he could have went to a contender, but is he willing to take a mid-level exception? Is he willing to take a minimum contract? So the best thing for him to do to go to a team like the Clippers that really don't have enough cap space to get him was 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 opting in and hoping and praying that the 76ers would be willing to trade him. I mean, wouldn't history suggest that he's going to get his way, right? Like like uh, it, like everybody in Brooklyn did. Like isn't isn't like we can play this out, but man, Keith, we've seen this play out a number of times. Sometimes with the with James Harden himself that <laughs> these guys end up finding a way to get to the place they want to go. Yeah, history would suggest that, right? I mean, and the only thing that will prohibit him from doing that is if the NBA says we have to make somebody turn someone into an example 
But but at the same time, I I do think that, you know, it's going to be so much like, you know, you got Nick Nurse coming here. Um, he's already said that, you know, this team is, is, is primed to win a championship. I mean, not win a championship. He wants them to go to the Eastern Conference, you know, finals, right? He, that's what he wants. So there's a lot of pressure on this organization. And if the longer that this thing happens and the longer that James sticks around, it's going to be very uncomfortable and it's going to be, it could end up being a lost season. So the best bet is to get rid of them to, to, to get rid of all the drama and stuff, because this guy's made a lot of money. Yep. You know, it's not like it's one of those guys like, Oh man, I need to do this. I need to do that. No, he's already made a lot of money. He could retire tomorrow if he wants to. So I think for the Sixers, this is um, for their ramifications. I mean, for all, like other uh, things that could happen, it's best for them to, to get rid of them because what about Joel Embiid? You know, what about Tyrese Maxey down the road? You know, you don't want to sour these other guys on, on you know, re-signing with the team. So I think it might be best for him to get his way and say, hey, we just took a loss. Yeah, I mean, speaking of losses, it was another playoff loss for, for James Harden. Um, in, in, in a home game, a, a potential closeout game against the, the Celtics, um, last season. And I mean, he's going to be 34 at the end of this month. Well, where do you think the state of James Harden's game is? Like, is, is James Harden helping anybody win a championship in, in 2023, 24? Wow. Nah, I don't think so. Um, I, I think, but here's the, the thing. Wait, well, I shouldn't say it that way. I, I think that James Harden, if James Harden is a facilitator and he does the things that he has to do, like, Getting getting his teammates the ball, um, you know, uh, making great passes, doing all that other stuff. I think James Harden can help you win a championship. But if you think that James Harden is going to be the face of a franchise, thinking that he's going to be the guy that MVP James Harden and stuff like that, that time is kind of like past his prime. You know, he's he's about to be 34 years old. I don't think he's still that guy. But if you have him with Joel Embiid and another guy, I think if he's willing to be a point guard and just worry about being a point guard, a facilitator, he can help you. But he's no longer that elite scorer on a consistently, consistent basis that he was like back in 2018, 2020. Mm -hmm. He's just not. But I do think that he's a good guy. He's a good guy. Now, the problem that the Sixers have, right, Mm-hmm. James Harden isn't the type of guy. James Harden alone, along with Joel Embiid and Tyrese Maxey, they're not good enough to win a championship in my eyes. But if you lose James Harden and you don't have a replacement in regards to an elite point guard, then you're going to be worse off than you are now. So it's kind of like you see why they're not willing to just trade them and just cut their losses because they want to get to the Eastern Conference Finals. Yeah, and if they, I mean, if something like that eventually comes to pass where it becomes untenable, like, you start to wonder about the future of Joel Embiid, who's under contract. We Again, like, the, the contracts are one thing. It, it hasn't stopped many a player from opting out, or not opting out, deciding to, to remove themselves from a situation and requesting a trade. And, and Joel Embiid has been a fan favorite, and he, he's, yeah. Uh, seemingly beloved in, in Philadelphia. Like, how, how much pressure is on this organization this season to, to keep Joel Embiid from deciding, I've had enough. Like, I've been here since the, the start of this, the process, and, and still we haven't 
reached a, a conference final. And just to put it this way, and, and no one is saying it publicly, you know, but you have to believe that Joel Embiid is playing, paying close attention to all this, right? Because, you know, you look at it, this isn't just the James Harden situation. People, you know, some people, I guess, forget that two years ago that he went through the same thing with Ben Simmons. And then they traded Jimmy Butler before that, you know, who who uh, was, you know, his best co-star that he's had, right? So there's a lot of things where if you're Joel Embiid, you're playing close attention to what's going on because, like, he's about to be 30 years old. We all know his injury history. And he wants to win a championship. So it, he's going to pay close attention to this. And if they don't make the right move, and let's just say if they get another person to be a co-star that is really not up to par, then I could see Joel Embiid down the road saying, you know what, guys, it was great, mm. but um, can you do me a favor and send me to a place that I want to be at? Man, <laughs> it, it all sounds all well and good in a, in a sport in which, you know, getting a lottery pick, getting the top overall selection pretty much guarantees you a superstar player, which they got in an MVP in Joel Embiid, but... Keith, like, describe to me what, what the process has been like, uh, start to finish, and if there are any lessons to be learned. Well, I think the process was a failure. I, I want to say that it was over a long time ago. But, um, but when you look at it, it, thinking back at it, this is all you need to know. So when the Sixers started the process, they had a 21-year-old all-star point guard in Drew Holiday who they got rid of the tank to start a tanking process. Mm-hmm. Why did they do that? because the team couldn't get out of the second round. They, they felt like the team had a second-round feeling. Well, Drew Holiday has gone on and played for Team USA, won a gold medal, won an NBA championship, and is one of the best two-way players in the NBA the last, what, five to six years, right? So the Sixers got rid of him, and they had so many different people come in, all these high expectations, and the team – still has a second round film. Yeah. It's not and ideal. With a lot of so that's all you need to know about the process. <laughs> Before that you go, I mentioned the Raptors connection and yeah, we we talked about the the Fred thing and, and Houston maybe not happening if if uh James Harden well becomes a free agent and yeah perhaps if Ime Udoka doesn't become the head coach. Oh no, no I, I take that back. I, I well not not take it back. I think what happened is if Fred would not have become oh, okay. a free agent Mm. Then it was the uh, then James would have been over there. Mm. No, nah, it wasn't. It was no. Believe me, it was. It was like they looked at Fred and they looked at James. And you know, James is going to be a Hall of Famer. But if you look at a perfect fit for what the Houston Rockets are trying to do, it's Fred over James right mm. now in this stage of their career. You know what I mean? So I, I, I think that's what it is. You know, Fred's a, a, a better defender. You know, he's younger. He's a feisty guy. Whereas James is a ball dominant guy, and you have these young guys, so that's what. It, yeah, it wasn't. Mm. Yeah, believe me. Yeah, not Fred took James' money. That's what happened. <laughs> oh, yeah, I mean, who could have expected the the undrafted kid out of Wichita State, who's barely six feet tall, was going to take James Harden's uh, money? But yeah, no, it's it's hard to argue with uh, with him being a better fit. I'd feel better if I was a Rockets fan with Fred VanVleet than I would with James Harden. Uh, last last one though on Nick Nurse, who who took the Sixers job, and obviously he has the playoff resume. Um, 
and and, and he knew it was going to be a little bit turbulent there considering their lack of success. But do you think he would have expected this type of offseason to go into a season with, with this kind of weirdness and who knows how it's going to play out his first year in Philadelphia? Do you think he would have taken the job if he knew this was what it was going to be like? Probably not. I don't think so. Nah, I, I don't. I mean, and it's crazy because, you know, they're going to play the Milwaukee Bucks in the season opener um, to open the season on, on October the 26th, right? And, you know, you know, he backed out of that job. He, mm-hmm. you know, he took his name off uh, from consideration. And, you know, his uh, one of his, you know, his top assistant, another guy from Toronto, got the job. Mm-hmm. And now I'm pretty sure he's like, why? <laughs> why? <laughs> why? Yeah. Because, you know, like this is a lot of drama, man, for a first-year coach, for any coach, but especially for a first-year coach. Yeah. And a team. Yeah, maybe he really likes cheese steaks, though, so maybe that'll help smooth it over for him. Uh, who knows? Uh, yeah, he a lot of cheese steaks for that, bro. <laughs> <laughs> he can afford it. Uh, Keith, uh, yeah. uh, enjoyed the piece uh, today. Thanks for doing this. Hey, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Keith. Uh, there's Keith Pompey, Sixers reporter for the Philadelphia Inquirer. That's, I mean, it's it's a good thing to have in the back of your mind when you think about the Raptors. I mean, Okay, don't have a second-round ceiling anymore. They have a three-quarters of a playing game ceiling, it seems. Um, but, yeah, the idea that it's, like, it's binary in sports. Even one like the NBA, where if you don't win a championship or you don't have that superstar, that there's no point in trudging forward with a DeMar DeRozan and Kyle Lowry-led Raptors team. And, yeah. It did get to a point that a shakeup was needed. Although, I mean, if there's no Kawhi Leonard, is there another season of those two at the at the helm of this Raptors team? But no, it can get worse. Or it can look like it's going to get better, and it didn't, like has happened in Philadelphia. And secondly, uh, secondarily, so James Harden is, is going to go into the Hall of Fame one day, and we'll all have a good laugh about this, including him. And he'll have his zero rings pretty clearly. Um And time will heal all wounds, perhaps even between James Harden and Daryl Morey. But I will say, even for a guy that's made hundreds of millions of dollars playing NBA basketball, there's an element to this that I I do understand from James Harden's perspective, if in fact this is playing out the way it appears to have played out. Where he, like, there's just no debating. James Harden could have opted in for more than $47 last year, decided not to. Signed a two-year deal. With an option this year, but that covered last year, saved the Sixers 15 million bucks, allowed them to do things they could have they could not have otherwise done with James Harden making 47 million bucks. And whether there was an explicit agreement or an implicit one, there's probably a scenario in which Daryl Morey said, Oh, oh yeah, I forgot. That's what you do in the playoffs, isn't it? Oh. And you're gonna be 30. Oh. They said, forget it. Why, why on earth would we sign 34-year-old James Harden with nothing but playoff failure to a max extension here? Forget it. You can opt in. We'll play it out for another year. And then you can hit free agency after that. Or, or maybe we revisit the extension talk at the conclusion of the season. But the James Harden got screwed. And, and every time the, you, you, know, you point to the Boston Bruins or the Tampa Bay Lightning or the Pittsburgh Penguins, and Sidney Crosby taking less than his market value to help build a team around him. You could say, 
kudos because they did that, right? Like they were successful. And Sid has three Stanley Cups and Bruins have one. Lightning have a couple in this era. That's good. But it doesn't always work out that way. And these executives, as is their want and as would be yours if you were in their position, are in it for themselves. Like, does Daryl Morey really care about making friends? No, he cares about saving his job. Cares about winning a championship. Cares about building a successful organization, which not working out at the moment. But yeah, he probably lied to James Harden. Like, that, that, that more than likely did happen. So I, I like the idea of, of the altruistic pro athlete in a cap sport who says, I choose team over myself. I'll give money back to help build the best possible team that can work if it works and, and everybody's on the up and up, but it happens sometimes that not everybody is true to their word, which might be happening in Philadelphia right now, but we all know how this is going to end up. James Harden's going to be a clipper. All right, when we come back, who knows how much longer Wander Franco will be a Tampa Bay Ray. I will get into what the hell has happened in Tampa the last couple of days with David Sampson, former Marlins president, host of the Nothing Personal podcast with David Sampson. The fan drive time continues. I'm Ben Ennis, Sportsnet 590 The Fan. Sportsnet 590, the fan. I'm Ben Ennis. Blue Jays with a well-deserved day off today. They won a baseball game yesterday and had a winning record over their 17-day stretch in which they played 17 games, started two-game series at home against the Philadelphia Phillies tomorrow who find themselves in second place in the National League East um, because the Atlanta Braves are just a total wagon. Uh, They're 11 games back of first. And the Braves, who, by the way, start a series against the Yankees tonight. The Yankees stink. But uh, Philly is very much in the uh, playoff discussion in the National League. It's down to seemingly four teams for a playoff spot in the American League. And I know the Red Sox are only three games back of the Blue Jays, but I I think we've seen their warts. Like, if I'm just judging on talent, and for the Mariners, it is on the strength of their pitching, not dissimilar to what the Blue Jays have done, because, boy... I mentioned the Blue Jays are third worst in Major League Baseball and cashing runners from third base with fewer than two outs. There's only two teams below them. One is the Detroit Tigers. The other is the Seattle Mariners, who lead Major League Baseball in ERA and just recently had an eight-game winning streak interrupted by the Baltimore Orioles, taking two of three from the Seattle Mariners. Philly's top uh, National League wildcard team, with the Giants a game and a half back of them, and the surprising Miami Marlins still in a playoff position after a big walk-off victory over the Yankees yesterday, coming back from a four-run deficit with five runs in the bottom of the ninth inning. Not all good, though, in the world of Florida baseball. 
Uh, I'm old enough to remember when the Tampa Bay Rays were on pace for like 150 wins. They had an incredible winning streak to start the season. Blue Jays, in fact, handed them their first loss of the year. They've tapered off since then. And now they're dealing with something entirely different than baseball. Wander Franco did not play yesterday after some Instagram posts surfaced that claimed he was dating a 14-year-old. Now, Rays manager Kevin Cash said it was just a day off for him. But since then, he's been placed on the restricted list, will not travel with the Rays on their road trip, and the league has launched an investigation. Let's talk to David Sampson, uh, former Marlins president, host of Nothing Personal with David Sampson. Uh, David, thanks for doing this. How do you, how do you feel that the, the Rays have handled this situation? I think the biggest mistake they made is having Kevin Cash after the game say that it was a scheduled day off, and it was nothing more than that. I think that you lose credibility because, A, I've never heard of anyone getting a scheduled day off on the day of their giveaway. And it was a Wander Franco giveaway. And, B, uh, if it's a scheduled day off, why would he leave the clubhouse and the dugout in the fifth inning? So a lot of things were going on. They may have only understood the seriousness of it during the course of the game, but that seems hard to imagine because I don't know why you'd get an off day like that. What you try to do is give players two days off by giving them an off day before a scheduled off day, so you actually get two days not playing. That's how we did it. That's how many teams do it. So there's a lot going on with this investigation and with Juan Franco, and don't forget he signed to that huge long-term deal. Yeah, 11-year, $182 million deal, which seemed like a steal at the time. And, yeah, you look at the on-field production, it it, it has been a steal. Uh, but, yeah, who knows how, how this is going to play out. I... I Forgive me if you're not, like, as well-versed in the CBA as, as I want you to be in asking this question, but, like, we know that there's provisions in there about domestic violence and not necessarily does a criminal charge have to be even even placed for you to be disciplined by Major League Baseball. Like, I, I can't remember anything like this occurring. Do you know if there is a provision for Major League Baseball to take um, to take steps to, to discipline Wander Franco without anything criminal? Well, there was an issue with Louis Polonia uh, quite a few years ago with a, a person who was underage. And, of course, we're just speculating. There was an Instagram post. That's why they're investigating. They don't know. At least we don't know the true facts. But, yes, there's a provision in the CBA that allows for suspension of a player. Basically, view it, look at it like uh, conduct not becoming an officer, mm. where it's sort of a catch-all for uh, of how a player is acting. But it's, it's done in conjunction with the union. And so the union is a part of these negotiations, and it's a part of the suspensions. It, you pre-negotiate certain things, like the steroid suspensions. That's pre-negotiated that you get 80 games, first offense, then 162, and then a lifetime ban. But under the domestic violence policy, it's not pre-negotiated. It's negotiated on a case-by-case basis, and this would be the same thing. Yeah, I, I mean, so he could fight something. like, And you know what? It, it brings me back to even yesterday, like the idea or, or even today that he's been put, it on, put on the restricted list. Um, if he's not getting paid, do you think he would be amenable to that? Can they do that? Like I, my understanding of the restricted list is that quite often you are not paid while you're on it. Is, is, that, is that something that he would likely have accepted pending some review? Yeah, it's not. Sometimes it's always you do not get paid on the restricted list. So that's different than Trevor Bauer was on what's called the administrative list during that investigation that went on for all that time. So he was being paid every two weeks by the Dodgers at the time. 
by putting a player on the restricted list, what, what you've told the union is, hey, we're suspending him without pay right now, but we're investigating this and it's going to go fast. You don't stay on the restricted list without any sort of penalty uh, for a long period of time. And the Rays actually said that they're doing it for this road trip. And the hope is baseball can decide whether or not there's anything doing here in that period of time. And if not, they may move him to the administrative list where he would start to get paid. Or on the restricted list, and then all of a sudden everything's fine, then he would get back pay. That's negotiated as well for the days that he's missed. So this is there's still more to this story. We're going to find out more each and every day. But it is a big story for the Rays. They've had so many injuries. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've had so many off-field issues. This is the second issue with Franco this season. Remember, there was the issue where he was benched earlier in the season when he wasn't showing leadership that they wanted him to show. Mm-hmm. So this is one of the problems when you sign young players to, to big deals. You just don't know for sure what you're getting. Well, and yeah, it, it, like I said, it felt like a coup for the Rays, and it's it's kind of the world in which they have to operate, right? Like it was uh, Evan Longoria, same sort of deal where you, you try and get out in front of his best years and – you know, the, you you share some of the risk, but you certainly take on some of the risk with a player that's unproven. Not unlike what the Astros did with John Singleton, who reached the major leagues once again. But is this kind of like, hey, this is the downside of that? Is that you don't really know the player all that uh, all that well because they're in their early twenties, and yeah, you, yeah. You, you're 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 wagering almost two hundred million dollars on a guy that hasn't been in, in your organization for all that long. Yeah, I think we should point out when Tampa first started doing this and they were early adapters, they were getting discounts from players, which is how it should be. If you're going to give a player guaranteed money that they would not be otherwise entitled to, you ought to be getting a discount for that. Now players are doing these young deals, whether it's the Braves doing it with Riley or whether it is the Rays doing it with Franco. uh, There's no more discounts. It's at par. And the problem with that is what's the upside for that? And you're right. Julio Rodriguez, a huge deal. There's no discount there. Julio Rodriguez better be good for a long time or that's a terrible deal. And you expect to miss on some of these deals when you sign a bunch of young players to guarantee deals. But if you miss it numbers that big, that's a problem for most organizations. Yeah. Uh, who the hell knows how this is this is going to work out. It's a really bizarre situation. But uh, as uh, for right now, Ray's have their best player not available uh, to them. All right, let's get to, to, to baseball. Let's stay in the in the American League East, though, because the Yankees, I mentioned it, they, they blew a four-run ninth-inning lead to the Marlins yesterday, who've been this great success story, and poor Luis Arise is only, like, hitting 365, not 400 anymore. But they, they've been great. They've been a spectacular story, and I saw, you know, over the weekend they, they had some nice attendance to, to see those games against the Yankees as well. But I'm, I'm interested more in the Yankees and the disaster they've been uh, in last place in this division, and now Aaron Judge is back. And Brian Cashman, like I don't know, to me he's a borderline Hall of Famer. He's got four World Series titles. He's got two other losses in a, in a World Series, but they haven't made it to the World Series in 14 years, which is like an eternity if you're the New York Yankees. Are we watching the end of Brian Cashman's New York Yankees tenure? It's possible, but I would just like to push back a little bit and say he's a definite Hall of Fame executive. And this is coming from a guy who beat the Yankees in 03, and, and uh, I am not a big fan. That said, yeah. what he's done, the Yankees could have their first losing season since 1992. They're in the playoffs every year. Maybe 2016 they missed. Maybe they'll miss in 2023. But winning a World Series requires a lot of luck. 
once you're in the playoffs. The skill is getting there. And then having the depth to try to make it through October, but balls have to bounce your way. You have to get some CNI singles that could be double plays, but they end up being RBI singles. All sorts of stuff has to happen. And uh, the Yankees have been in a position, but what they're a victim of now is their roster is just not good enough, and they ended up overpaying a bunch of players who have not been what you would have expected them to be. And the question is, how long will Cashman stay with these players and with this theory of how he builds his team? But I think if they miss the playoffs, I think there will be a change. I don't know how you come back with Boone and Cashman Mm. after the kind of season the Yankees have had. Uh, yeah, so Cashman, a Hall of Famer, do you, do you think he lasts even this long if George Steinbrenner's still alive? Oh, no chance. <laughs> Absolutely not. And, by, and, and it's huge. Any other owner in the world would have moved on from cash just because you want to get a new voice. And voices get stale. There's only so many Popoviches. Voices get stale. That's the reality of life. That's, mm-hmm. I mean, that's what divorce is, isn't it? Mm-hmm. it in business and in life, actually. Mm-hmm. But... Hal Steinbrenner, you know, this is sort of like a therapy session, but Hal Steinbrenner so badly doesn't want to be George that he's gone the other way completely. Like the anti-George, which, you know, is just a daddy issue. So the question is, at some point, something's got to give. No, that's a great, great point. I mean, speaking of divorces, there's there's some bad uh, words exchanged between Justin Verlander and unnamed sources out, out of the New York Mets, right? And Verlander just recently tweeted out uh, a statement talking about how it was unfortunate that some people can't accept uh, constructive criticism. The report out of Queens was that he it was talking about the Mets analytics department not being quite on par with what the Astros had. Uh, and there was also a report that he was acting like a diva. I'm not so much interested in that. Like, it wouldn't surprise me if future Hall of Famer Justin Verlander was acting like a diva. Like, I'm sure there's a lot of pro athletes that are at his level that act that way. What do you make of the fact that this is coming out uh, after the fact, that, that things are starting to leak, that, that you know, out of, out of, uh, out of Queens, again, that, that, that make former players not look so good? Do, do you make anything of that? Yeah, if I'm the Mets, I want to make sure that everyone understands that this season, while it was a huge disappointment. The trades that we made at the deadline were done purposely to improve the culture and to get us back to winning ways. We're going to keep spending money on payroll. We're going to have a high payroll, but we're going to allocate it in a smarter way. And that's all you could ask for from the front office, but they want to get the narrative out there. Now to go after Verlander is surprising because he's actually been kind, whereas Scherzer was not. And I also understand Steve Cohn, very insecure, very sensitive, very thin skin, no matter what he says, because all owners are. And analytics should be his game. That's how he's become a billionaire. And so when you impugn analytics, he would take it as impugning him. And the Astros were always ahead of everybody in that regard, always, going back 15, 20 years. They were the, the standard for analytics. And the Mets were not known for their analytics department. And he's only been there three years, so it's hard to catch best in class in only three years. So I believe that the Astros are better. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. But I also believe the Mets are putting the resources in to close the gap. It's crazy that the Padres are only three games up on the Mets in the National League (laughs) wildcard. They're they're six games under five hundred, despite having a plus 57 
run differential, uh, David, and Juan Soto's, I don't know if he's throwing his teammates under the bus, but he's, you know, saying some stuff that you don't necessarily. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, for people who haven't seen, he said, yeah, that they're basically giving up in baseball games instead of fighting all the way to the end. Maybe you can speak to that, but you've been a guy that, you know, always looked, uh, side eye at at the way the Padres were doing business considering the size of the market and it worked last year and they had all kinds of excitement and selling out uh the ballpark um it it really does feel like it's blowing up in everybody's face this year yeah so this is what they've done under AJ Preller they sign a bunch of guys everyone gets excited as they pretend they're Los Angeles and then they stink they're not Los Angeles and they can't sustain it because the team is losing so much money and the owner, Peter Seidler, can talk all he wants about we're here to win World Series and we've got the best market in the world. And I love San Diego. Don't get me wrong. It's maybe my favorite city in the country. But that said, they're not Los Angeles. They don't have that revenue. They can't sustain a payroll like they have, period. And so changes are going to have to be made. And this team was doomed. It, it's been a terrible clubhouse. They just spent money after money without pondering how to put a team together. And they just took every shiny new toy off the shelf and said, this is going to work. And it hasn't. So eventually they'll change it up and start again. And uh, if they miss the playoffs, I think that they'd be smart to start again because another year at this level payroll uh, without winning is going to do them in. Mm. And yeah, they, they didn't sell at the deadline when they could have maybe even recoup some assets for Juan Soto. The, the angels not only didn't sell at the deadline, they bought, um, in the final year of Shohei Otani. And I guess there are reasons outside of actually making the playoffs, which were always a, a long shot. But they've been, yeah, worse <laughs> since the trade deadline. They're six and a half games back of the final wild card spot in the American League. And I, again, like there are other things outside of, I, I, I guess, making it to the playoffs for the first time with Shohei Otani. But do you think there's, there's some, some regret in Anaheim that they didn't maybe take uh, a more serious look at, at, at shopping Shohei? Well, listen, every time you make a bet that loses, don't you always have regret saying I should have gone the other way? I can't believe I didn't go with the underdog there. I should have. That would have been smart of me. So that's Monday morning quarterbacking. They had no choice because Artie Moreno was never going to trade Shohei. And on my show, Nothing Personal, I was very clear about that back in March that Otani was never going to be traded. Now, will he resign? I still think he does, actually, Hmm. because he's comfortable there and Moreno spends money. And that's not been the issue that just hasn't worked out so far. But, you know, Giancarlo Stanton wanted to go to the Yankees, and he doesn't have a World Series ring, and he really wants one. So you can't dictate where you go and say, oh, now I'm going to win World Series. It really does not work that way. So comfort and family and money, all those things will come into effect. But the Angels, too many injuries, not enough pitching, and uh, that's it. So they have no chance to make the playoffs. And I think Artie Moreno, deep down, however delusional he is, knew that. Mm-hmm. But you still can be forward-facing, say we tried, and then start again next year. So, David, there's, there's about, you know, what, like five weeks left in, in the Major League Baseball regular season, which is, it, it's still, you know, a pretty significant sample. And just last season, Bo changed the narrative of his entire year. But the Blue Jays, all season long, have been this team that have not hit with runners in scoring position. And we've, for, for so long talked about how you know one of these days they're going to go on this incredible run hitting with runners in scoring position you'll see the regression and that they're going to be a, a good offensive team it hasn't happened to this point like does there get to uh, to a point in the season and are we at it now where you stop expecting or or hoping for a regression 
and you are what you are. So, no, because this is exactly, and I've spoken to other people at your station about this very concept, where to me, the Jays are like the 2005 Marlins, where we expected to compete. We were in the playoff race the entire season, and our players kept saying, we're veterans, don't worry. We're going to turn it on right now. We're ready to go right now. And then lost after loss, and we were over 500, and we were just hanging around and ended up, I think, going 83 and 79 that year and uh, just could not get over the hump. But we thought we would way past August 14th. So I think that the the thought that Toronto can get its act together is still there. The players still believe it. The front office, I'm sure, is more suspect. But they certainly supported the team at the deadline when I didn't think they had to, given how the clubhouse has been and how the performance has been. But I, I, I still love the Blue Jays team, all of it. I really do. Pitching, defense, hitting, everything, depth. It just feels like they are, are waiting to turn a switch on and baseball that can be hard to do yeah it would be nice if vlad looked a lot more like the 2021 version of himself which you know the, the further we get from it does feel like a bit of an outlier like he's he's had four if not complete partial seasons outside of the one in 2021 where he's been pretty similar to the guy he's been this season like where are you and he but he's only 24 i get it and like there's there are some advanced numbers that tell you he's hitting the ball hard i, I same sort of like maybe macro question when I was asking about the micro of the season, but like macro in a guy's career, at what point do you start to uh, flip the switch mentally and say that, okay, maybe Vlad's just a good player, not a great player. Yeah. You got to start thinking that way because you have to look at what was going on in 21. You have to look at what, what balls were being used, whether or not that numbers are impacted by the balls, whether they were juiced or deadened. And then you have to sort of examine him on a daily basis. And as the uh, months turn into years, all of a sudden the exception can no longer uh, be viewed as the rule. And you wait as long as possible because once you flip that switch, that informs what you're going to do with that player long term. So if Vladimir Guerrero wants to be paid like the 2021 Guerrero, the Blue Jays ought not do that because he's not that. And so he's got to be that. And, and, on the other hand, Guerrero's not going to sign long-term for the 23 Guerrero because he views himself as better. But the Blue Jays shouldn't pay for the 21 Guerrero when they have not seen that enough. And so that's when long-term deals are much harder to do is when players and management have a difference of opinion as to which player the player is. Well, okay, and I'm going to talk about this next, but does that not put you in a place, where, especially when you're talking about a position where offensive, like the, the, the bar... To, to be a, a viable first baseman offensively is very high. Like the, you have to produce offensively. If you're, it's not like shortstop, it's not like center field, it's not like behind the plate as a catcher. Like you got to produce offensively if, if, if you're a first baseman. Is this not an offseason if this continues the way it is and there's still somebody out there that believes Vladimir Guerrero Jr. has untapped potential that you do look at, you know, you explore the trade market for him? Oh, I think everybody is available for trade. But I do think that baseball's changed. It's not, it used to be that certain positions you didn't look for offense, and you mentioned them, like shortstop and center field. It's not like that anymore. There's some great offensive shortstops now, you know, with Seager as an example, and it would be Turner, though he has not played to that this year uh, in Philadelphia. So you can, depending on the makeup of your team, you can definitely have a position that is below average offensively. With whatever position it's in, some, for some teams it's catcher, but the Phillies have J.T. Realmuto, so it depends who you have. And so for the Jays, just because he's not 
a 40 home run guy does not mean that he's not your first baseman of the future. But again, if he thinks he's a $30 million player, that's when you have the problem. It is. We'll see. Got a couple of years of team control left after this one. David, uh, appreciate the time. Thank you. My pleasure. Have a great day. Thanks. Yeah, you too. There's David Sampson, former Major League executive, host of Nothing Personal with David Sampson. Vlad's having a fine year. He's having a very Vlad Jr.-ish year, like save for a few more home runs. By the way, he only hit one during that 17-17 and 17 stretch. Whit, Mer- uh, Whit Merrifield hit four home runs. Over the 17 games, the Blue Jays did not have an off day. Vladimir Guerrero Jr. hit one at Fenway Park where everybody hit a home run. Well, David Schneider looks like Barry Bonds at Fenway Park. That was the home run that Vlad hit over the last 17 days. He's having a fine year. And and despite the the game of baseball looking uh, more aesthetically pleasing with the the pitch clock and the, uh, you know, the bigger bases and yada, yada, yada. Like the offense has not gone through the roof like maybe some people thought it would with the elimination of the shift. So yeah, like having a 780 OPS, good. Better than average. Blue Jays went out and got a guy that was like one foot out the door as far as retirement is concerned in Brandon Belt who was like, he's he's got bones that are like turning to dust as we speak. They went out and got Brandon Bell. Brandon Bell was like, boy, I could either take this deal or I could just go off into the sunset and go fishing for the rest of my life. Sign the one-year deal with the Blue Jays. He's outperformed Vladimir Guerrero Jr. He plays first base. And and the reason I bring up the positional thing, and David's right, there's there's great offensive players at shortstop. Blue Jays have one in Bo Bichette. It's hard. Those guys are hard to find. And it's why every prospect starts at either shortstop or catcher or center field, because if you actually get one of those guys that can play capable defense at those positions and is an offensive plus, you got it made in the shade. Like it's unbelievable. Yeah, you, you got future Hall of Famers there. First base, that's like the position you eventually end up at if you're an incapable defender at any of those other positions, which makes the pool bigger. More guys can play first base. I know in Moneyball, it was very incredibly difficult to play that position defense. It's, it is not as hard as shortstop or center field. So you're, you're picking from a larger pool of offensive players. And the idea that Vlad is this defending gold glover, I mean, look at the defensive numbers this season. So defense, I'm not saying he's a bad defender at the position, but I'm saying it's not like you're going to lose something defensively if he's not your first baseman of the future. But you have to view his offensive performance this season through that prism. That there are guys that you can acquire pretty easily, whether it be in free agency or via trade. Look at Josh Bell. It's like Josh Bell's banged around a couple of different teams the last couple of Like Josh Bell, do perfectly cromulent Vladimir Guerrero Jr. impression at first, at, at first base. You can't be locking that guy up to a 10-year, $300 million deal. And if that's what he wants, and if it doesn't look like there's any wiggle room there, and there's somebody on the outside, <clears throat> Angels, who lose Shohei Otani and are desperate to make a splash yet again, maybe that is something you explore in the offseason as, as far as trade.
I certainly would. All right, when we come back, shout out to Oakville. My guy, Nathan Rourke, had a spectacular NFL preseason debut for the Jacksonville Jaguars. There's been one highlight out of NFL preseason, understandable, because it's NFL preseason. And it was authored by the former BC Lions quarterback, most outstanding Canadian, who's trying to catch on to the, the Jags roster this year. We're going to talk to our man, Arash Madani, about that. We'll talk about the the fun run by Milos Raonic, who's back playing tennis after a two-year absence. Uh, maybe we'll talk about Kirk Cousins, who's now also my wife's favorite quarterback after watching the quarterback show on Netflix. All right, Arash Madani next as the fan drive time continues. I'm Ben Ennis, Sportsnet 590 The Fan. Drive Time Sports Time 590 the fan. I'm Ben Ennis. Almost 200,000 of you went to go see tennis last week. 175,000 fans. The National Bank open mostly to see our next guest, Arash Madani, uh, who joins us now. How's it going, Arash? Long time, my man. How are we doing? I'm doing very well. Uh, enjoyed uh, your work uh, over the week. Um, and, and you know what? For me, the the biggest takeaway was Milos Raonic, who was making his return to tennis after a couple of years away with with all the injuries and great sit down with you and, you know, gets through a first round against a top 10 dude and and gets all the way to the round of 16. Um, What do you think this week meant for him? Uh, I think it meant a lot for him personally, more than his tennis, Ben. Uh, Like, here's a dude who'd been, like you said, two years away. He hadn't hit a tennis ball in 14 months. I'm not sure how, like there were a number of times he admitted, I thought I was a former tennis player and I'm not sure he ever thought, you know, coming back home would be that under the lights, sold out crowd, wild three set marathon with, you know, Francis Tiafa, one of the most electric players in, in the game. We just got to us open final, you know, you, you want to go out on your own terms. That's why he came back and life ain't a Disney movie all the time. But to get that moment, um, even for a pretty unemotional dude, admitted unemotional dude, that meant a lot to him. He's, he's 32, which like, I don't know, you go back to the Pete Sampras era. Like when did Sampras retire? It was like around 32 years age uh, of age. But that's like, that's like entering your prime now, it feels like, or at least for, yeah, the big three. Who who are all well? One of them still playing into his his late thirties. Like, is there still more like lots more tennis ahead for Milos Raonic? I don't think so. I don't think so. I, I the sense I got from being around him the last couple of weeks is, you know, his plan was to play Cincinnati this week. He's out because something went wrong with the body, just mm-hmm. like something went wrong with the body um, after the first grass court tournament, which then led to him tearing a muscle in his shoulder at Wimbledon. And here's what's interesting, Ben. Like, we're always told that in anything that we do, we should diversify our interests and we shouldn't be all in on something and all those kinds of things in life, right? Except if you're a professional athlete, you're told you have to do everything 24-7 and have a tunnel focus. And Milos, 
when he didn't hit a ball for 14 months, he took some university classes, he read some books, he did some traveling, he met up with some friends he hadn't seen in a while, he spent time with his wife, he's got a lot of money that he's made over his career, he's got a beachfront property in, in the Bahamas, and he's like, you know what? Uh, life ain't bad. I don't need to be in Winston-Salem staying at the double tree across the street from the event. I don't have to worry about what time I am going to bed tonight because I have to be up in the morning to spend, you know, four hours in the gym between my stretching and my lifting and my running routine before I even get on the court to practice. Um, I think he wanted one last hurrah. And uh, he got it, and it wouldn't surprise me if by this time next year, Milos is a former tennis player. Sounds to me like you're you're making the call out for Kirk Cousins to realize that, hey, man, like there's there's so much outside Leave, of Kirk. <laughs> bye, gone, go, go work at go work at Target or whatever wherever you buy your clothes from. <laughs> no, it's his wife that buys his clothes. Didn't you? Did you not see the quarterback uh, uh, documentary series on Netflix? Well, uh, two things. One, no, um, <laughs> because I cannot stand the family. Two, they're not documentaries. I, th- I think this I, okay. is something we have to... What do we call them I, then? I know it, yeah, mini-series based on a true story. At least that's what <laughs> uh, The Last Dance was. Yes. Um, I guess all a- some access. Yeah. More, a- more access, maybe. Mm-hmm. I think that's all it is. Yeah, my wife loves him. My wife was really she was she was entranced by him. He's a good family man, and yeah, it's, football's you know it's a big part of his life. But it's, you know, it's about family for for Kirk Cousins. I'm just telling you, I'm all, I'm all for that. I just hope that the football side he could be better at it, but mm. apparently he can't. Buddy, what are you talking about? He is number 42 on the list of 100 uh, best NFL players for this upcoming season, as voted on by his peers. His peers think he's better than Aaron Rodgers. How dare you? Yeah, but Aaron Rodgers is no good anymore. That's true. Yeah, (laughs) you're right. Yeah, you know what I mean. (laughs) Lamar Jackson. They think he's better than Lamar Jackson. Well, they're fools then. Yeah, (laughs) and Lamar Jackson didn't uh, really play last year. Yeah, right. Uh, All right, we'll we'll talk uh, more football in just a second. I do want to circle back to tennis, though, as we go all over the place. So, so Milos. Man, he, he made an incredible run to a Wimbledon final. He, guy was number three in the world at one point, playing during the heyday, though, of the greatest generation of, of top tennis players we've ever seen, right? Like, it's, yeah. It, yeah. And and so it really would have been a miracle of all miracles to be, like, one of the very few non-Nadal, uh, non-Federer, non-Djokovic's to win a slam during that era. So we, we don't at all fault him for not winning one. Um, now there's no Nadal, there's no Federer, there is now an Alcaraz, and there's still a Djokovic, and Felix Ogier-Aliassime is going through it right now, although I, I don't know if he finished off his, his first-round victory. He won since today, May. yeah. Okay. But, yeah, so it's his first win since May. But, yeah, he's he's been as high as number six. Is there a better chance that he wins a slam than there was when Raonich was playing and got all the way up to number three? Yes. Yes, because now, today, outside of outside of Novak being in a draw, anybody can win at any time. That's like, it's look, look at the U S open this September. I could make a compelling case for a guy you've probably never heard of Holger Runa. I could make a very decent case as the defending champ to go lift another U S open trophy in Alcaraz. Francis Tiafo got to a semifinal. I, I, li- I could make a real argument there. 
Whereas when Milos was coming up, it was three dudes, and then, okay, Stan got three, and Andy got three or four. Delpo got one, and Chilich got one. And that's it for, like, 15 years. Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, it was just insanity. So it's and, – and Novak's going away at some point here. So it's going to be – it's going to be wide open to be able to sneak in and win one or two. It really is. And yeah. Felix has the talent to do it. He's 23. He's going through a little bit of adversity for the first time. But, Ben, I'll tell you this. My biggest takeaway from the week mm-hmm. is that I, ha- I cannot remember a phenom in sports that draws a crowd like, Car- like Carlos Alcaraz. Mm-hmm. And I'm, this is not hyperbole since Tiger Woods. Wow. Yeah. Like I- be- before Rafa and Roger would split the crowd, right? Like you're uh-huh. either on the Nadal side or the Federer side, and now there's nobody, and Carlos has won two slams in the last year, and he's 20, and there it was five and six deep just to get a glimpse of him at practice. Well, that's it. And that's, that's who I was going to bring up because, what, he's only 20 years old. He just went head, yeah, went head-to-head against Novak at his favorite event and stared him down and, and won. I mean, are, is it not possible that we're watching the next great one and that, boy, it'll be... And as, as it, Novak, you're right, is going to go away um, before, obviously, the 20-year-old Alcaraz's career is done. But, like, in the meantime, might it be those two dudes meeting in every final? Yeah, it could be. It could be, other than New York. Mm-hmm. Because New York's, the end of the season, it's a different animal at the Open. But, like, there were... There were three players who had home court advantage in this tournament this year. One was Milos, two was Felix, and three was Alcaraz. Mm-hmm. Like, it was wild. Like, the entire stadium in Toronto wow. is cheering for a Spaniard. Right? What? Like, when, when Yannick Sinner is playing whomever, Sinner wins the championship, Demonur yesterday, Tommy Paul the day before, fans fans were cheering for their wager or cheering for more tennis, mm-hmm. right? In the first set, they didn't care. In the second set, because Sinner won the first one, they're cheering for Tommy Paul because they wanted the night to go on. Mm-hmm. The people like they announced Alcaraz for the Wednesday night, the evening session under the lights, right after he won Wimbledon and tickets went fast. Mm-hmm. People want a glimpse of this guy. They want to touch him. They want to be a part of it. Um, and I just, I just don't remember anything quite like it. Well, yeah, it, it's not, I mean, during the, the, the run of the big three, right, like there was nothing really negative to be said about Nadal. And obviously Roger Federer is one of the most beloved athletes in um, my lifetime. Uh, so, yeah, no one was going to root against either one of those guys, I don't think. And But Djokovic is the black hat in all this, right? Like if, 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 we're, if we're giving any credence to, to, to fan input and, you know, the rooting favorite, if it is Alcaraz and, and Djokovic, isn't there a clear, isn't there a clear advantage there? Maybe, maybe. Um, it's just so hard to know. Um, but I, and I know that Alcaraz won Wimbledon. Novak's still the much better player. Mm. Like Novak dominated the first set, had the second set on his racket, blew a wide open volley in the tie break. That would have put him two set, up two sets to none. And that would have been curtains. Even Alcaraz admits that. Like, you know, I've got a few texts that day of the Wimbledon final, people saying changing of the guard. I'm like, hold on, Mm. (laughs) hold on here. Novak hadn't lost 
on center court in like a thousand days. Like it's let's 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 just pump the brakes a little bit before we get too carried away. Uh, I, I know you were in Toronto this week, uh, but yeah, in Montreal, disappointment for uh, Bianca Andreescu, and then we find out she had a stress fracture in her back. She's missing Cincinnati and hopeful to get back to the U.S. Open at the end of the month. But man, like not dissimilar to, to what Milos Raonic is going through, like the physical toll of of this sport on on the hard court. I mean, it, yeah. I, is there a history of, of somebody being that beset by injury at this point in their career and, and coming back and then getting back in the winner's circle when it comes to slams? Yeah, maybe not a Grand Slam champion, but it happens all the time. Like, it's such a demanding sport. And I don't think people realize just how much. Like, I, I spent a lot of time around Yannick Sinner this week, Ben. So Friday night, um, he wins the last match, the quarterfinal. He doesn't get out of the facility until like 1 2 in the morning didn't get to sleep till three and he shows up five hours before his match mm-hmm. for a hit um for some training um you know for his nutrition for his nap for his stretch for everything and it's just like holy smokes like it's just it's it's non-stop so look yeah, Bianca's gone through it. She's going through it. Um, it's a it's a real reminder that you just hit lightning in a bottle sometimes for two weeks with your health, with your matchups, with your level of of tennis, which Bianca obviously hit back in 2019. Mm-hmm. But you don't pick up where you left off. Like everything restarts every week. And that might be the wildest part of the whole thing. Well, and that's what makes guys like like Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic so unbelievable is that they just keep doing it week after and week. Serena, after week. And, and Serena and Graf. Yep. yep. You know, and Navratilova and like, you know, like the greats in in this sport especially because you're out there all on your own. You know, like it's it's kind of like a pitcher. It's kind of... It's it's like a golfer. Like it's it's wild that you have to keep it together physically and mentally every single week. Um, it's it's just nuts. It is nuts. You know what else was nuts? Uh, Nathan Rourke breaking four tackles, throwing a touchdown. <laughs> Your boy. Uh, it's my boy, Oakville's own uh, former most outstanding Canadian, uh, playing for the BC Lions, and you know going into. Uh, the preseason with the Jags is the number three quarterback trying to beat out C.J. Beathard uh, for the, the backup job to, to Trevor Lawrence. And it sure helps when you make your debut and Patrick Mahomes is retweeting highlights of, of your play. It's it's only one play. And, it, you know, he had a pretty great debut outside of that, too. And, and Warren Sharp was tweeting out, like, some of the pressure stats from the, the first preseason week. He was under pressure as much as anybody was and was able to put up some some pretty impressive offensive numbers like – what what is your level of of optimism that he's gonna stick to to that Jags roster? I have no idea. Like I, I have no idea if Doug Peterson believes in having a third quarterback on the roster. If Nathan Rourke would be willing to take a practice roster spot on that roster, if need be, I um, I, I put zero credence. Great play. Madden type gadget, notwithstanding, into what happens in the first preseason game. Nathan Rourke has a bunch of backups blocking for him with a bunch of backups rushing him. And as great as a video game controller moves are triangle square, you know, circle all in one. um, That's not going to make the decision on whether or not Rourke's going to make, 
you know, make the final 53 or not. Do, look, in, in Rourke's best case scenario, the Jags keep three yeah. and he's three. Uh-huh. Um, because, because this would give him an opportunity to spend extra time at the end of practice working with guys. Mm-hmm. No one's going to get reps. Like C.J. Beathard's going to get a handful of reps in practice yeah. when the season begins. It's Trevor Lawrence's show. So, um, you know, if you're Nathan Rourke, this would be the development year. So it just depends on how the Jags are going to map out their roster. And honestly, Ben, truth be told, I don't know if Trent Baalke and Doug Peterson know if they're going to keep three right now yeah. after one preseason game. I think so much has to depend on how the next three weeks unfold. I, I, I know it's stupid to, like, make a big deal out of one stupid preseason play, but, man, it, it play. was... Play, it, not even game, play. No, play. I I get it. But, like, yeah... <laughs> It was one of his first ever NFL plays. I get it. In the preseason, as he's trying to make a roster, I wonder if there's anything to that being such a high-profile play that even if he doesn't catch on with the Jags, like somebody else takes a chance on him. Like, And, and it would be a better situation to, to, to be in if you didn't, you know, went to an organization that didn't have a Trevor Lawrence. The play doesn't make a difference. What makes the difference is there were like 15 different teams interested, and he yeah. went on like 10 or 12 different visits at the start of free agency. Mm-hmm. And he chose the Jags because the Jags gave him some guaranteed money. And the Jags have a quarterback, a former quarterback as the head coach. And at the time, Henry Burris was on the Jaguars staff mm-hmm. and Burris probably, you know, vouched for him and the league to, to Jacksonville's brass. And he probably vouched for the Jaguars to Nathan Rourke as the, the go between Burris is with the Rams now, but, um, that's that's probably that has probably more to do with it than anything else. I mean, you, you saw his entire CFL career. Does he look like he has the skill set though to be an NFL quarterback? Yes, but that and I know this sounds crazy. That doesn't matter. Like everything has to do with the situation that you're in. Mm-hmm. A year ago, <laughs> one year ago, right now, Brock Purdy. Mm-hmm. was closer to being a CFL quarterback or an arena league quarterback or an XFL quarterback or a USFL quarterback than an NFL quarterback. Mm-hmm. Literally the last pick taken in the draft that year. Now he enters the second season of his career and the entire San Francisco 49ers season hinges on his elbow. So, you know, skill set is just, is, is part of it. It's situation, it's opportunity. If, if, and I'm not saying this is happening. If Nathan Rourke outperformed Trevor Lawrence at every turn in training camp this year, who's the starting quarterback? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah, it's true. I mean, there's a lot of equity though in Trey Lance at San Francisco. And it does feel like, like Sam Darnold might be the backup there. Like you mentioned Brock Purdy. hundred percent. Like, so it does, like it does get to a point and obviously, yeah, uh, obviously Trevor Lawrence has shown more in the NFL than Trey Lance ever did, but man, Think back to how, how successful that San Francisco 49ers organization has been, despite the fact that they gave up so much in trade to go up and get Trey Lance. And that's it. Like it, it it's almost like a Matt Flynn Seattle situation. Mine, I texted a buddy of mine. It's funny how sports goes. Yeah. Cause now there's no noise around San Francisco. And I'm like, I texted him. I said, what if Brock Purdy sucked? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. What, what if? We're, we're, like, think of the crosshairs Kyle Shanahan and John Lynch would be in right now. Mm-hmm. But 
you know? Yeah, yeah. Mr. Last pick in the draft yeah. made all the difference. Mr. Very relevant. Yeah, no, it's it's crazy. Sam Darnold's going to maybe be the backup there uh, outside of Trey Lance. All right, Arash, spectacular stuff uh, covering the tennis this week, and uh, we'll, we'll have to chat again soon. Thanks, buddy. Okay, appreciate it, man. Thanks, man. All right, there is Arash Madani covering the National Bank Open this week where Milos Raonic was throwing back the uh, the clock to an era. Man, you you do forget. Like, he was the one guy, and now we've got multiple guys on both the men's and women's side, but he was the guy, the best hope we had of winning a, a men's tennis slam, becoming the first to ever do it. Got as high as third in the world, made a Wimbledon final, and then, like so many others, injuries inhibiting his ability to continue his career. And I'm glad that he had at least that one moment where he returned to Toronto, got the ovation, got the the first round victory against a guy that's no tomato can and Francis Tiafo, uh, and then making it all the way to the round of 16. But when you hear Arash talk about the stuff that like I'd be talking about if I was a millionaire athlete, not good. Or I shouldn't say not good. Um, not good if you expect Milos Raonic to like crank it up again and be back in the lab trying to win slams and ending up as a top 10 player in the world again. That's what I'd do. What I'd do with my millions of dollars and lots of success at the first instance that I could say, that was a lot of hard work. I'd rather not do it. I'd rather sit on a beach and drink my ties. Yeah, it seems like maybe that was a fun little... Return to action for Milos Raonic, and then uh, back into retirement mode for him. But yeah, an incredible, perhaps swan song for Milos Raonic. Unfortunately for him, played in the greatest era of men's tennis that we've ever seen. Coming on the heels of the greatest, well, grass court player, greatest uh, singles men's Grand Slam champion we'd ever seen in the form of Pete Sampras. And then you get three guys that at different moments in their careers had the claim to be the greatest of all time. When you're third, it means that you're just outside of that group. And unfortunately for Milos, couldn't put it together. And his best chance would have been at Wimbledon with the big serve and made it all the way to the final, but could not punch his ticket. Day off for the Blue Jays today as they are regrouping. I mean, this is been a, a team that's been so so healthy all season long this is the first real spat of injuries that they've had to deal with off day coming at the right time uh shy davidi today writing that bo Bichette's return from his knee injury is going a lot more positively than maybe he could have even expected you got jordan romano eligible to return from the injured list tomorrow trevor richards is working his way back chad green could be here soon enough Roster's also expanding at the beginning of September to 28. Blue Jays have a tough customer again coming their way tomorrow to Rogers Center in the Philadelphia Phillies as they try to cement their spot in the National League postseason. Blair and Barker will get you set for that matchup. Look back to uh, the weekend that was in Blue Jays land. I'll be back tomorrow. This has been the Fan Drive Time. I'm Ben Ennis, Sportsnet 590 The Fan.